Hey everybody, welcome to ARE Live. Uh, I'm Mark Tier, the founder of Black Spectacles, and today I'm with Mike Newman. And we're going to be reviewing our mock exam for the ARE 5.0 programming and analysis exam. Uh, if you're thinking about ARE 5.0, this is the third exam. Um, and it really kind of, uh, it, it sort of begins this process or begins the exams that kind of take you through the normal design process. And so this exam um, is sort of focused on conceptual and schematic design. Um, and so, uh, so that's what we're going to talk about today. Before we get started, uh, if you'd like to attend our next ARE Live broadcast where we'll discuss the ARE 5.0 construction and evaluation mock exam, uh, visit blackspectacles.com slash podcast to register. Uh, and during the broadcast, you'll have a chance to ask questions to the group and of Mike uh, as well. Uh, as you guys probably know, uh, here at Black Spectacles, we have built you know, our comprehensive ARE 4.0 and 5.0 exam curricula that you guys can utilize. Um, and I often like to remind folks that if you'd like your boss to pay for your Black Spectacles membership, uh, be sure to tell them about our firm licenses, uh, which are really for any size of firm. So whether you work at a 10-person or a 10,000-person firm, um, we have a firm license that gives access to multiple users, group admins, and reporting, and all that kind of stuff. So uh, you can, if you want to learn more, if you want to get in touch with us, and um, and or have your, uh, you know, have uh, someone at your firm get in touch with us, you can do so at blackspectacles.com/firms. Um, and as we normally do, uh, if that's not something that uh, is going to work out for you, uh, we have a special discount on Black Spectacles individual memberships, which we'll share at the end. Um, and then lastly, uh, since we have this mock exam, at the end of today's episode, we'll choose someone from all the folks who submitted their answers, um, and they'll win a free one-month ARE prep uh, Black Spectacles subscription, and we'll be tracking your answers. And whomever gets uh, all the answers right, um, assuming that Mike doesn't throw any like trick questions in there. Which I do uh, occasionally, sorry. Um, then uh, you'll get a free Black Spectacles t-shirt, so stay t tuned for that um, as well. My guest today, uh, if you don't know Mike, he is uh, an adjunct professor at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. He's also the founder of Shed Studio, and he is our instructor for Black Spectacles Online ARE exam prep curriculum. Um, and if you, already, if you haven't already checked out um, our ARE exam prep curriculum, head over to blackspectacles.com to watch any of the free tutorials from all the courses. Um, and then today we'll be taking questions using the GoToWebinar question box, as well as on Twitter using the ARE Live podcast hashtag. Um, so, uh, I'm going to go ahead and hand it over to you, Mike. So, as Mark said, the programming and analysis uh, exam under the 5.0 uh, setup is uh, one that's really about conceptual and schematic point in the project. So, uh, you can imagine everything from uh, surveys to soils to context of the neighborhood to uh, kind of preliminary contracts uh, to program, programming, uh, all of those kinds of things are all sort of open for discussion. Uh, and one of the things you may realize very quickly there is that uh, that means this is one of those exams that potentially has what are essentially structural questions. It would probably be about soils and footings and things like that. Uh, could also have uh, systems questions in the sense that you might be thinking about orientation of the building. You might be thinking about kind of general ideas of how you would approach a project uh, in terms of uh, you know what kind of major systems choices you would have, uh, major sort of initial concepts for structural systems. Uh, but all of these things also will also clearly have issues of contracts and uh, design and programming and all of that. So what we're saying here is that this new format, the 5.0 format, is really set up to mix all these different question types uh, together. So we'll start with that uh, kind of concept and, and just sort of dive right in. Okay, so let's just run through a few of these, uh, these little questions uh, and see, uh, see what we say. So number one, the architect is ordering the survey. The surveyor asks the architect what type of survey is needed. Which of the following is true? A, always order an ALTA survey. Uh, B, always order a boundary survey with possible additions of utility locations, topography, trees located, easements, etc. C, the only way to understand the lay of the land is to make sure the surveyor performs a topographic survey to produce a contour plan. D, the architect should not, should not order the survey. 
All right, so we were looking through those. There's a couple of kind of key words here. Uh, and this is one of those examples where there's actually a number of kind of correct answers. Uh, and then there's the actual answer. Uh, so if we take a look at A, uh, always order an ALTA survey. The ALTA survey, ALTA stands for, I always forget, it's the American uh, something title uh, association, land title association. I'm going to go with the American Land Title American Association. Land Title Association, uh, and it's essentially a group of kind of real estate type people who have a series of standards that, that they've put out. And the Alta surveys are actually a very useful terminology to know uh, when you're getting for any kind of like a government funded project or any larger project. You would probably just tell the surveyor you want an Alta survey because that's one of those sort of known types. It's got a whole list of different things. But that's not the answer here. So how about B? Uh, B, always order a boundary survey within possible additions of utility locations, topography, trees located, easements located. Uh, that's actually uh, undoubtedly true. It's essentially you're saying uh, the Alta survey, uh, but you're saying what we, no matter what, we need at least a boundary survey. If you're gonna talk about a survey, the whole point of having a survey is you've got the boundaries located. The survey is a legal document. It's a legal document describing the land. So the boundary is the key aspect of that legal document. It's the essence of that legal document. So it would always have a boundary survey. But then while you have the surveyor there, it sure would be use, useful to know the utility locations. It would be useful to know uh, what the topography is. It would be useful to have major elements, something like you know trees larger than 12-inch caliper or 6-inch caliper or something like that located. Uh, easements would certainly be part of uh, the, the sort of survey discussion in that. So B is a completely reasonable answer uh, that you would always order a boundary survey and then you're adding on those other elements. The Alta survey is a version where they've just pre-described what the other elements are. But B isn't right either. So C, the only way to understand the lay of the land is to make sure the surveyor performs a topographic survey to produce a contour plan. Well, that's certainly true, but it's not really the essence of the question. So the answer is gonna be D. And the reason that the answer is D is the architect should not order the survey is that there's a whole series of things that the architect does at the beginning phases of a project. So remember what we said was this exam is about the sort of early programming, schematic, conceptualization uh, stages of the project. And so this is at that beginning point as things are just sort of coming together. The survey is an important part of that. It's important to have this sort of baseline understanding of the legal description of the land that you're going to be working on and all those kind of uh, little elements about that that could have important meaning in terms of the design, in terms of kind of uh, where it's going to go. But it's not something that the architect is supposed to be ordering. You can order it, and there are situations where that does come up, but technically, through uh, the standard AIA contracts, the architect is never the one who's supposed to order these. Now, why is that? The reason for that is that if you imagine there's a series of things that you're supposed to do at the beginning of a project as an architect, and there's a series of things that the owner is supposed to do at the beginning of a project. Uh, and as you get to the point where the contractor is brought on board, there's a series of things that the contractor is supposed to do. And they each have sort of important realizations about uh, kind of who's responsible for what and, and sort of keeping everybody on track so you, you know who's supposed to do what. But it's also about liability. Essentially, the owner is saying, I own this land here is a survey of the legal description of the land. Now you, architect, do a design intent for what we can do on that land, and then you, general contractor, will produce that design intent and make it manifest. We'll make the, make the thing from the architect's design intent. But that the owner is sort of laying claim to the land, and they're giving you the site. And so part of that is by giving you the survey, Part of that is by giving you uh, the geotechnical information, uh, by any environmental surveys that need to be done, a phase one or phase two, something like that. 
so they are supposed to produce those things and then give them to you at the beginning of the project. So your role is to then take their information about the site and turn it into a design. So this seems a little sort of ridiculous uh, to, to parse it so closely, but realize that the surveyor's work is actually hugely important. If you imagine if a survey is off by eight inches, to just make a simple typo or uh, some other kind of uh, easy mistake to make. And your building, the foundation, gets put eight inches too close to a property line and a code official comes by and says, hey, this isn't two feet off the property line, this is one foot four off the property line. You gotta move that foundation. Well, if you've ordered the survey, guess who's paying for it, right? That's a big, big deal. Uh, and if the surveyor was uh, hired by the owner, as it should be, then it's the owner's issue because they're the ones who are taking liability about the, the nature of the property itself. You're taking liability for all the decisions you're gonna make about how we do a design for that property. That's plenty of liability. You don't need to take on anybody else's liability. Like I said, there are some situations where that gets a little mixed up, uh, where there's developers involved, where sometimes the architect is tied in contractually with the developer, and this, this is some, there's some sort of complicated ways that that's not always the case. But unless it says something very specific about what kind of delivery system it is, you would never have the architect ordering the survey. All right, we're down, <clears throat> we're down to 29. How about that? I know that's one of those ones that it seems so obvious. You know, the part of the reason that I always make a big deal out of this is uh, a friend of my partner's uh, told me a, a story once about how he had a client and the client said, I don't know any surveyors. Just, you know, get an order a survey for me. He's like, I'm not supposed to order the survey. You're supposed to order the survey. He said, I don't know any surveys. Get me a survey. So he said, okay, here's two phone numbers for two different surveyors. So the guy chooses one of them, calls them up, goes through, the project goes six months later, turns out there was a problem with the survey, uh, and the guy sues the architect and wins. Like, I couldn't believe it. But it turns out it's a real thing. It actually happens. I know somebody who it happened to. <laughs> so I don't want that to happen to you. And it definitely shows up on the exam because that's one of those sort of simple organizational things. Okay, number two, when thinking about the possibilities for solar gain in passive and active systems, which of the following would be terms that you would be considering? Choose three. So a, a certain percentage, not a huge percentage, but a certain percentage of the questions will be these uh, choose all that apply questions, uh, CATA questions, I think call them. Uh, and they're usually pretty easy with maybe one complicated one. Uh, so let's just sort of run through what our possible answers are here. Uh, so we're talking about solar gain in passive and active systems. Uh, we're thinking about the possibilities. So we're trying to understand uh, what the, what you know, is this a possible thing? Where is the sun going to be? Will we have enough sun? Uh, and so our uh, terms here are orientation, scope, azimuth, solar angle. <coughs> excuse me, uh, node, feasibility gate, mechanics lean. <clears throat> Sorry. Don't worry, Mike is not choking right now. Yeah, I'm just getting it. a He's little okay. drink. Uh, all right, so we're talking about solar, uh, therefore we are talking about the kind of movement through the sky. Uh, you were talking about how much sun is going to be uh, hitting the site. Is it worth putting in uh, a uh, trom wall? Is it worth putting in a greenhouse uh, in a specific site? And the way that we would figure that out is by understanding where the shadows are, understanding how much sunlight is going to be coming in. And the three terms that are directly related to uh, solar movement are going to be orientation, azimuth, and solar angle. Uh, so azimuth is, if you can imagine, we have a, our site is, uh, so there's our little building, there's our site, uh, and we have, say, north up here, uh, and you know that the sun is rising in the east and setting in the west, uh, so the, if you sort of did it in plan form, 
let's say the sun was rising there, setting there, uh, and it's, let's say, 11 in the morning, something like that. So, all right, we're right there. That is the azimuth. So it's the angle off of the cardinal direction. Typically, it's the angle off of south, which is one of the cardinal directions. Um, but it doesn't have to be. It could be off of north. It could be off of east or west. Um, it always seems weird to me that they don't just say it's the angle off of south. Uh, but it's the angle in plan off of a cardinal direction in order to help you understand the sort of location of where the sun is. The solar angle, if we imagine this is now up in the sky, so let's say that that's where the sun is. We now know where the azimuth is, and that would be the solar angle. So that's telling us how high off of the horizon uh, the sun is. So those two terms are the way that we locate something in space. Uh, so in the summer, like this is showing, and how do we know this is summer? Is because it started north of uh, due east and sets uh, north of due west. So it's got to be a summertime, in the United States at least. Uh, that in that high summer angle, uh, we can, with those two numbers, the azimuth and the solar angle, we can figure out where the sun is at any point during the day. As you get into the winter, it'll be a lower solar angle. Uh, as you get uh, into the winter, it'll also uh, be a, a diminished amount of space on the, that azimuth run there, because we'll start uh, south of due east and we'll end south of due west. Um, so hopefully that all makes sense. Those are the three terms. Uh, scope clearly would be a useful thing to know about. That just means the, the amount of work. Uh, node is about a totally different uh, concept. Feasibility gate uh, is one of my favorites uh, on this particular one because I just made that up and I thought it sounded good. Uh, mechanics lean is about uh, ownership of a project and whether the project actually, uh, whether the, you're being paid for the work and cl laying claim for pay for the work. So that's a totally different thing. So the ones here that are about um, uh, solar angle and all of that are orientation, azimuth, and solar angle. Orientation is just that sort of general description of what we just went through. So in North America, uh, if you have a lot of windows on the south side in order to get uh, a lot of uh, sunlight in, uh, that would be a question of orientation. You're orienting the fenestration to the, to the uh, regular sun path. Okay. Seems like there's a little bit of an art form for coming up with terms that sound like real architectural Yeah, well, one of the things, I'm glad you actually mentioned it, because uh, one of the things I should say is on the actual exam, there won't be kind of fake terms like that. That's a fake term. That's just me making up a, making up a term. Um, but they will use terms that sound like real answerable sound answers. Reasonable, like reasonable answers. Yeah, and in fact will be a reasonable answer to a slightly different question. Right, so everything you see will be something that's that's actually pretty reasonable choice, uh, and you know you have to sort of decide. Which is why it's so important to read and reread that question to make yeah. sure you got all the different uh, parts of it. Yeah, and part of that is one of the things I'm. I, if you've heard us talk about this stuff before, you've heard, definitely heard me already say this. Uh, is you're always looking to see what are they actually asking you? Not necessarily what is the right answer, but what is the answer that they want us to give? Uh, and it's really important. It makes you read the questions differently and you parse the questions differently. And it's a very useful way of looking at the, uh, the information. But a lot of people actually get psyched out by that because they know what they, they, know what they think they're asking for, yeah. but they're a little afraid, like, oh, that's too easy. Um, yeah, often they're actually quite simple questions. And remember that something that's easy for you, that's a really good point, I'm glad you brought that up. That's something that's easy for you uh, and you've been working on a certain type of project and you get this question it's like, God, everybody must know this. Well, there's a whole lot of other people who are working on totally different kinds of projects and maybe never came up with that. It may not be an easy question for them. So first of all, there's always gonna be a f some easier questions and some harder questions. But also you, everybody has a particular sort of knowledge base that they bring to the table 
And you know, what seems easy to you may not seem easy to other folks. Equally, what seems easy to other folks may not seem easy to you, but you know, there you go. All right, number three, uh, and this one is actually not, probably not how it would be worded in the actual exam uh, because it would probably be part of a more complicated question, but I wanted to keep it sort of reasonable and simple so we could just have a quick discussion about it here. Uh, number three, the preliminary design suggests that there will need, there'll be a need for a parking lot of 36 spaces. Uh, essentially, how many square feet uh, will the parking lot take up? So you have to have a pretty sort of nimble sense of, well, how big is a parking lot? Uh, and the easy answer, the sort of easy way to think about this is that parking lots are generally, you'll hear people refer to this as, some will say as low as say 300 square feet per parking lot, per parking space, uh, up to about 400 square feet per parking space. The number that I always use is 350. Uh, not everybody will, you, you'll see some guidebooks will say a little lower, a little higher. The reason there's such a range there is it kind of depends on what you mean by the parking lot. Do you, are you including the drives that go up to it? Are you including landscape areas that are required by most of the codes these days to provide a little buffer so you're not, it's not a sea of parking, but there's like a tree every once in a while. Are you including, uh, you know, extra spaces for uh, handicapped uh, spaces, things like that. Uh, so if you're bare bones, just the, the tightest possible thing, well, that's probably gonna be about the 300 square foot per. If you've got a kind of complicated site, you've got to get to the parking lot and you've got a, some landscaping requirements and you've got a sort of unusual moment where it turns a little, you know, well, then it's gonna be closer to the 400. I think the 350 gets you right about there. Most guidebooks will tell you 350, but like I said, it's a bit of a range. So you multiply 350 times 36, you're gonna get A, 12,600 12, square feet. The other way you could figure this out is, well, how big is a parking lot, right? So uh, what do we know about parking lots? Well, we've got 36 spaces. So a typical parking lot would give us 18 on each side. Let's assume that's 18. It's not, but let's say it's 18. Uh, so we've got 18 and 18. That means this is going to be 18 times nine feet. It's possible that it might be eight foot six, depending on the zoning analysis. It might be, uh, there's a couple of other possibilities, uh, but nine foot is sort of a typical and straightforward number to use. So you could multiply that out. Uh, and then the other number you would be interested in would be the other direction here, which would be 19 feet for the length of the car parking space and 24 feet for the drive aisle, which means that that entire thing becomes 62 feet. So I usually say this is somewhere between 60 and 64 feet. So very quickly, you can figure out how big this is, even if you don't remember these numbers. Uh, it's actually really important for you to be able to translate something like 36 parking spaces or 152 parking spaces or whatever it is into actual square footages because you need to be able to dance back and forth so that you can look at a site plan and say, yes, this, this parking lot will fit here or you can uh, kind of uh, make quick decisions without having to design something right off the bat. Like I drew this all out, but you should have been able to get to 62 feet right off the bat because that's a standard and just know that it's 18 times nine. You didn't even have to draw it. You could just list it. And then you leave yourself enough space for the drive aisles and all the other things that you have to do. Uh, so that would come out, this would, the way that we just did it, would come out relatively close to the 300, and then you add a bit more, and that's the extra 50 for all those drive aisles and things like that. So being able to flip back and forth quickly and easily uh, is a very useful thing for this exam. Okay, down to 16. <clears throat> Number four, in a cold climate, which of the following plan shapes make the most sense for house design, presuming that all have the same square footage? 
So one possibility is a long, thin house that's on a looks like a specific angle. Another possibility is a more squarish house with a courtyard. Another is an actual square structure and plan. And the last one is uh, my version of the Villa Rotunda. <laughs> uh, the Villa Rotunda is probably a pretty good answer, but yeah, we're not going to answer that one. So that's not, that's not it. That's more there for fun. So it really is just between these three. And each of these three are reasonable answers for a climate. But only one is the reasonable answer for a cold climate. So the question becomes, well, what are, are the issues of a cold climate? Uh, and the uh, biggest issue is it's cold and you don't want to lose heat uh, out of your walls. So you want the most efficient of uh, the uh, building plans. So I have the least amount of heat loss per uh, square foot of building. Uh, the one here is for temperate. Uh, so that is a very close and reasonable answer. It's actually not a bad one for a cold climate. Uh, it gets you, the angle gets you all the benefits of uh, allowing to, to get as much of the, the late summer sun and, and to really uh, get some benefits out of that, but it's still mostly oriented to the south. You're reducing the east and the west so that uh, in the uh, uh, hot summer months, uh, that temperate climate, uh, you're not getting a lot of that late, uh, late uh, solar gain at the end of the day and that early one. So this is, uh, A, is perfect for a temperate climate like, say, for example, Chicago or uh, these ones that get both hot and cold. Uh, the courtyard is perfect for a hot, arid climate. Um, it's also pretty good for a hot, humid climate. Uh, the reason that the uh, humid climate works really well is I can have windows here and windows there, and I can get uh, air to just sort of find its way and blow right through. And it's a good way to create a, a passive uh, way of, of creating a sort of not air conditioning, but that the air is constantly moving. You're reducing the the moisture level, you're allowing the air to blow right through. Uh, similar things with the hot arid, I get some shade, outdoor space that's shaded, I, uh, uh, allows for a couple of other options. Um, but that's not a great one for a cold climate, even though there's something kind of nice about having a protected space in a cold climate. So there may be reasons to do it, uh, but I'm also, what I've essentially done is I've just increased my exterior wall space by you know 20% or something, and so I am therefore losing 20% more heat out through that exterior wall. So the answer is C. It's going to be the most straightforward and efficient. A better answer would actually be a circle, uh, because it would be even more efficient uh, in terms of wall area to floor plan. All right. Look at number five. Zoning issues that should be considered for a new project in a central city location include, it's another one of these uh, choose all that apply. Uh, we have easements, FAR, overlay zones, asset map, setbacks, meets and bounds. Um, these are all related to surveys and zoning. Uh, so they are all potentially possible things that you might imagine choosing. Um, so this is one of those examples that we were just talking about, how they will choose words that are certainly part of the discussion. Uh, and so that makes it a little tricky. Um, but only three are actually zoning issues. So again, this is that parsing of the thing. Is like There it says zoning. So that's a very specific, that's part of the zoning code discussion. Uh, it's different from the sort of full contextual site discussion. Uh, so the three answers are going to be FAR, floor area ratio. So that's uh, a, a way that not every uh, zoning code in the country uses FAR, but most do and they use it on the exam. Uh, and it's the concept that you have a certain amount of square footage on the site. And one of the ways to control the mass of the building is to say, all right, if we say you have a 10,000 square foot site and you have an FAR of one, that means you can build a 10,000 square foot building. Now, it doesn't mean that you necessarily have to build a 10,000 square foot building that goes 
lot line to lot line. In fact, it probably doesn't mean that. You, for other reasons, like setbacks and things like that, you probably can't do that. But I could do two 5,000 square foot floors uh, and place it on the, on the site. So it's a way of sort of controlling the overall mass of a building uh, through the zoning code. And there's a couple other systems that are like FAR, but FAR is the sort of more famous one. Uh, the other obvious one is setbacks. I just mentioned them. So that's side yard setbacks, front yard setbacks, uh, rear yard setbacks. This is definitely, when you, if you think of an image of a place in the city uh, or in the suburbs or uh, any, any sort of normal sort of uh, place that's not a super unusual um, example, like if you think of a, a place that's say uh, retail stores that are um, on a city street, well, what's the front yard setback? Well, it's probably zero. The set setback is right at the sidewalk. And why? Because the zoning code creates the desire to have uh, uh, people excited and buying on the street. They want to create that, that kind of quality. And then you think of a suburban house. Is that right up on the sidewalk? No, it's set back. And it's literally set back because the zoning code asks them to set it back. So the, when we think of the look of a neighborhood, by far the biggest impact is going to be the FAR and the setbacks. Those are the things that make our cities and our suburbs look the way they do. So then the big question is the next one, and it could be easements, it could be overlay zones. Uh, asset map is actually just a thing that you do. It's not really part of the zoning, so that's not a, a potential answer. I mean, it's a good thing to do, is to map all the assets of the neighborhood, but it's not really part of the zoning requirements. And meets and bounds is another sort of interesting one, but meets and bounds is actually a type of surveying. Uh, so it's more of a survey question, not really a zoning question. It's a really interesting survey question. It's one of those ones where if you're way out in the middle of nowhere and the, it's gonna cost too much to have the surveyor really figure out you know, where it is in relationship to other stuff, you might just do a meets and bounds, which would be where you start at some known place and then you go a certain number of feet in one direction and it'll say 502 feet and it'll give an angle. And then you get to that spot and then it'll say, all right, uh, now we're going 615 feet and then it'll give an angle. And then eventually it'll come back uh, down to there and all of those numbers of feet and all those angles will create what is effectively a survey. So meets and bounds, really interesting uh, way of doing it. It's the old school way of doing this. When I say old school, I mean like 1700s old school, uh, but it's still done uh, in those sort of unusual locations. So it's not meets and bounds, because that's not about zoning, it's about surveying. So the question really is between easements and overlay zones. Uh, and it turns out it can't be easements, so it's not easements. Uh, why isn't it easements? Easements seem a lot like zoning. They are a lot like zoning. They are restrictions on a site uh, that sure seem like they should be uh, uh, right out of the zoning code, but they're not from the zoning code. Easements are actually uh, legal descriptions on the land. So uh, if I own a piece of land and the utility company wants to put a uh, power line through, they would actually write a contract with me and I would sign that contract and it would ride with the deed. So it becomes part of the deed. It's an understanding of the overall uh, uh, sort of legal description of the land, but it's my land and my legal description. It's not the zoning code telling me to do something. It's that I have signed a contract with the utility or with the next door neighbor or with whoever. So easements are private deals that ride with the deed. Now the ride with the deed is really important because that means that uh, Mark tries to pull a fast one on me and uh, you know, makes, a, makes a special deal with me that I can uh, access uh, my, my site uh, with a driveway through his his thing and I pay him a bunch of money for that, but we don't actually sign the contract and it doesn't end up becoming an easement. Uh, and then he turns around and sells the property to somebody else 
and they say, hey, look, I got the deed right here. It doesn't say anything about you having access through my property, and Mark walks away with the money, right? So uh, this is one of those things. It's an important element. You'll find easements that might have been written in the you know, 1600s, 1700s, 1800s. They ride with the deed in perpetuity until something is done to take them off. Uh, so easements, really likely possible thing to be dealing with at this point. It's just not a zoning thing. So, okay, what are overlay zones? Overlay zones are something that they are very much likely to ask you about. Uh, this is a situation where you say, all right, I have a whole series of zoning rules, and those zoning rules say, I, with this size of a site uh, in this kind of district, I can put in uh, 72 units of housing. But the overlay zone may say, yes, but if you make that affordable housing, we'll give you 10% more. So it's not that it's specific to that location. Most zoning maps, most of the issues are specific to a particular location that is a particular district. The overlay is saying, we have other issues that we want to uh, encourage or discourage, uh, and we're just gonna lay those on top of these other situations. So it could be affordable housing, it could be green roofs, it could be uh, any number of sort of things that the, the city has decided, the town has decide, decided that they want to encourage or, as I said, discourage. And so it's a way of giving a little nuance and kind of uh, opportunity uh, in, built into uh, the, uh, the zoning code itself. So it allows uh, things to be less strict uh, and provide opportunities for various developers. It's become a big thing around the country and it's also become a thing on the exam. So it's worth sort of noting. There's a couple different terms that may not be called overlay zones, but overlay, uh, some people was overlay regulations, things like that. Okay, number six. The site topography requires that the new post office building that you are designing and, uh, and its parking lot uh, will need to be at different elevations. There is a three foot elevation difference. For obvious reasons, you have decided that you want the cost to be as low as possible and hope to not need extensive railings. What is the best minimum distance for the walkway slash ramp uh, from the parking area to the main entryway of the building? So there's a couple of possible logical answers here. The first thing everybody knows, we're talking about an accessible ramp. What's the uh, ramp slope? Well, it's gonna be one to 12. Uh, so if I have 36 inches, which is three feet, if I have 36 inches vertical, that means a, a direct accessible slope would be 36 feet long. That is not the right answer. Why is that not the right answer? Well, there's two possible reasons why that's not the right answer. One is, if I have an accessible ramp, every 30 inches vertical, so two and a half feet, if you are expecting somebody to go up uh, vertical height, uh, they need to have rest points. So every 30 inches vertical, I would need to add a five foot landing. So the bare minimum, it could be if we we're doing uh, an accessible, uh, an accessible, direct and accessible ramp would be 41 feet because you would have to add that ramp in no matter what. Even that's not really the right answer though. Uh, why not? Because the other key thing it said was we want to keep the cost as low as possible and not need extensive railings. If we're going to do an, an accessible ramp, it's going to have curbs, it's going to have railings, it's going to have railing extensions, it's going to have all the things that any ramp would have to have. That's going to be very expensive, and we've specifically said we don't want that. So what would be the minimum that we could do and not have that? So the question is, what defines an accessible ramp? Well, the steepest accessible ramp, as we just said, was a 1 to 12. If we have a 1 to 20, that is the 
lowest slope that's still considered an accessible ramp. So if we chose the 20 for that three foot elevation difference, uh, instead, of, um, uh, instead of having uh, 36 times one, uh, uh, time, times 12, which is the, the issue with it, then when you convert it back to feet, ends up being 36 feet. Now we're saying instead of it being 12 inches for every one inch vertical, we're saying it's 20 inches for one inch vertical. So if you uh, uh, do that answer, uh, sorry, I don't have it in front of me. Hang on just a second. That's 60 feet. So 60 feet gives me a slope that is no longer considered a ramp. It's just slope. So I don't have any requirements for railings. Just like a sidewalk that has a little bit of slope to it, just like anything like that. So the fact that I am trying to make this as uh, cheap and reasonable as possible, interestingly, I make it longer in order to make it cheaper. Now, that one probably threw a lot of people. Uh, so my guess is if you got somebody who figured out the 41 feet, that's pretty great. Um, uh, I think 36 doesn't quite do it. I think you got to know that there's a little bit more going on. Uh, but the best answer would be 60 feet. Now, technically, it would be 60 feet and one inch or something because it has to be slightly lower slope than 1 to 20. Um, but this is an important concept to understand, and that's why I wanted to do a question about it. Uh, I don't think a question will come through quite like this, but this is the kind of thing you need to sort of recognize that says, all right, there are rules and it's easy to slip into the, like everybody knows that it's one to 12, right? We all know that, but it isn't always one to 12. There are times when I do a one to eight, there's times when I do a, a one to 24. The one to eight, that's not an accessible ramp. It's still a ramp, it's not an accessible ramp. When we say the one to 12, we're really talking about one to 12 to one to 20. That's a very particular set of uh, ramps, set of uh, dimensions that have a whole bunch of extra rules to them. Everything beyond that has their own set of issues, right? In this case, we had a couple of different uh, things to deal with, issues, topics to deal with, and uh, one of them was saying, let's not use railings. Now, on the actual exam, it would be more clear, I think, than the way that I so wrote it. So let me it. ask, uh, so the one to 20, you're saying that uh, with at that slope, you don't need railings? You don't need railings. Okay, cool. I did not actually know that. <laughs> I think it got a lot of people off too. I think, as you're saying, this is a good example of, um, maybe maybe don't sweat this question as like whether you got it right or wrong. Yeah, yeah. this is really meant to bring up the issues. It's more of like an exercise in really looking closely at all of the stuff that's in the question and being really, um, because a lot of times they, they, they're going to be really specific um, with some of the, they'll throw in one word and that one word will change the whole meeting. I mean, in this case, Mike threw in that phrase that he underlined about extensive railings and that kind of changed the whole meeting. Um, so think about it maybe as an exercise um, and uh, uh, in, in searching for you know, what are, the, what are those words or those phrases that are kind of... Kind of um, what's actually going on. I, one thing I will say is I would actually, if I was rewriting this, I would get rid of the word hope because that, that it doesn't, that's not strong enough. Um, mm -hmm. So that's, that's on me. Um, uh, but if you just take that word out, uh, not need extensive railings is a pretty clear, like the one thing you think about with an accessible ramp is all the railings. Mm -hmm. Like it's thousands of dollars in railings. It's much, much easier to go a few more feet of, of ramp without any of that uh, than it is to go shorter distance with all the extra cost and complication of those things. And you, you didn't have railings when you're at 1 to 20. Was that what you were thinking there? Right. Okay, got it. Cool. All right, so seven. The preliminary design shows a three-story building for the site. Using some preliminary calculations, the typical column load looks to be approximately 60 kips. Looking through the soil report, you see a series of possibilities. 
which of the following seems to be the most likely for your preliminary design for the footing size and depth? Uh, so first of all, let's say uh, where did the soil report come from? Like we just talked about earlier, the owner has supplied the geotechnical information, so the soils report actually is given to the architect by the owner. You don't actually order it, the owner orders, owner, owner orders it. Um, now, having said that, there's plenty of times when I've ordered the geotechnical because the owner just couldn't get it together. So uh, I've done that many times, but technically I'm not supposed to have done that. So they've sent me this thing. I'm now looking through it. I'm trying to figure out, uh, we have a preliminary conversation with the structural engineer. They say, yeah, there'll be about 60 kips. You're trying to get the conceptual drawings so they look at least reasonably accurate. Uh, and we're trying to figure out which of the following seems like a possible thing. So let's throw away a couple. Uh, the first one we're going to throw away, see that word peat? Peat means organic. Anytime I have organic material uh, means that it's going to change shape. It's going to uh, decompose. It's going to go through a process. I will never build anything on top of anything with peat or any organic material. Uh, that word is in there specifically to trip you up. That is, that is the classic sort of, uh, go ahead, it looks reasonable. Uh, you've all heard the word peat before. That must be a reasonable choice. Uh, and it's a famous one that they put in there in order to get you to make that choice. And it is absolutely wrong. Uh, you never build on top of organic material. You would always strip it away and get something non-organic uh, to, to put it on. So we can get rid of A. Uh, another one that we can get rid of, uh, this talks about a typical column. So it doesn't say anything about being like near a property line or anything like that. So another one that we can get rid of is this one that is uh, four by eight. Why would we do a footing that was four by eight? So if you imagine a footing kind of long and thin and then there's a column kind of in the middle of it, I, that just doesn't make any sense. Uh, that, oop, <laughs> wasn't, try to get that accurate, there we go. Um, uh, that just doesn't make any sense. It's not how you would do a footing for a typical column. Uh, it's always gonna be square because you want the uh, load to be evenly distributed. Uh, now, can you always do square? No, if you're right up against a property line or sometimes there's sort of unusual structural situations where I have two columns near each other or uh, there's a soil difference in one location than there is in another location. So there's times when this isn't, isn't true, but none of that is re referenced in the question. It just says a typical column. So right off the bat, you would assume that it would be square. So we have two squares. Uh, a and D are not uh, the answer. One possibility is bedrock at uh, 10,000 PSF, pounds per square foot capacity uh, for the footing, and that would be at 60 feet below grade. Uh, or we could do a four by four at 60 inches, five feet below grade, where it's setting on a sandy gravel with 4,000 PSF. Uh, well, it's kind of really no question that four by four, uh, that's 16 times 4,000 is gonna get us over uh, the 60 kips. Uh, and so B is a great answer. Uh, if I could do the same thing five feet below grade as I can do 60 feet below grade, I'm always gonna choose the five feet, unless there's some other piece of information like there's a basement or something that's deeper than that. Uh, but I, uh, a, caisson, which is what C is really describing, uh, is a significant expense. And so it's a big, expensive, and it's just there's no advantage for it. Um, and the numbers don't actually even work. If you multiply the 10,000 times the uh, four square feet, it only gets you uh, 40,000 uh, PSF, which is not equivalent to, uh, that would only help us in a 40 kip situation. So it doesn't even work anyway. But not only does it not work, uh, it just would be a very expensive and kind of ridiculous thing. Remind us again, how do we know that gets us the, uh, that's sufficient for the 60 kips? So um, if you have an area and you have, so the four by four is 16 square feet, mm -hmm. right? Uh, that's the old school symbol for square feet, a square with a line through it. 
Um, probably most of you don't know that. <laughs> 16 with a marshmallow. <laughs> That's you. right, with a skewered marshmallow. Um, so 16 square feet, uh, and then we have 4,000 PSF. So pounds per square foot, PSF. That means every single square foot has the capacity to hold 4,000 uh, pounds. So we have 16 of them. So we just multiply 16 times 4,000, and what do you get? 64,000. What do you know? So we multiply that times 4,000, and that equals 64,000, which is greater than 60 kips. Remember, 60 kips, so that's 60, the K stands for essentially 1,000, uh, and 64 has, is greater than 60, and therefore we have more capacity than the load coming down. Now, remember, this is a preliminary, it talks about being preliminary, so there's some other issues. You might, uh, you might have sliding issues, you might have, uh, you know, there's all sorts of other things that might come up as it goes along. Um, this is also presuming that uh, the 4000 PSF already has uh, a factor of safety built in and the 60 KIP already has a factor of safety built in, um, but it's possible you might get a question that would be exactly like this and then it would say plus a factor of safety of, of uh, you know, 20% or something, and you'd have to add that in, uh, so it would make this a little bit more complicated. But essentially, when you're talking about a footing, there's a, each different soil type has a certain kind of capacity, uh, and some are gonna be not such a great capacity, and some are gonna be incredibly good capacity. So the bedrock at 10,000, sometimes up to even 14,000 um, uh, PSF, man, you can put a lot of load per square foot on uh, directly onto the bedrock. But most places in the country, that means you're going down 40, 50, 60, 100. Uh, a lot of the cities where you see these things uh, used all the time for the bigger buildings, they're going down 120, 140 feet to get to that bedrock. That's a big, big expense. You gotta really wanna build that big building in order to make that uh, logical and, and make sense. But what they're doing when they're going down is they're looking for more PSF because the other soil that's up higher than that just doesn't give them enough oomph to be able to have enough bearing capacity to be able to do that. So this is a very simplistic look. It's the kind of thing you would be doing at the early stages. All right, we're down to two candidates here. Rock on, <coughs> wow, I'm impressed. All right, uh, eight. You are working with a client on a design for a series of townhomes on a large former factory site. The preliminary design will not fit into a regular reading of the zoning code. You should consider suggesting to the client that they should A, change the project to an industrial building, B, review the building code, C, contact the mayor, D, propose a PUD. Uh, so first of all, I love the idea of telling the owner they should consider dumping their uh, townhome concept to an industrial building. Uh, while that would make sense from the reading of the zoning code, uh, essentially does not make sense for a client. So uh, that's, you know, nobody's going to approach you for townhomes and then you're going to say, uh, why don't we make it an industrial building? And then they'll say, yeah, good idea, and then walk away. Like, that's just not how it's going to go. Uh, so that's just not the reasonable answer. How about review the building code? Well, I absolutely suggest you review the building code, but that is also not a reasonable answer. It doesn't really answer any of the questions that need to be answered that are posed by this question. So then you have contact the mayor, uh, and that's actually not a bad, it wouldn't necessarily be the mayor, it might be the zoning official or somebody like that, but essentially what that person would tell you is D, propose a PUD. A PUD is a planned unit development. Some places call them PDs, planned developments, but I believe that uh, the, the exam use, uses PUD uh, for its terminology. So a planned unit development is a very sort of interesting idea. It's essentially, uh, you know, I have a client, they want to do a project, and uh, the project they want to do makes a lot of sense. It makes sense for the client, but it also possibly makes sense for the community. Maybe it's a good idea for the city. Uh, you know, maybe there's just no industry that's going to be moving back onto that piece of land. And so it doesn't really make sense to build an industrial building that there's no industry is going to move into. So what you might do in that situation is essentially propose your own zoning code for that site. 
So you would, the whole process is a little complicated, but essentially you would go into the zoning department. Uh, you'd say, look, this is what we want to do. They would tell you all the things that they would be concerned about uh, and give you a sort of preliminary idea whether it was plausible or not. Uh, you and the client would then hire a bunch of people who are uh, like zoning lawyers and uh, people who can do marketing analysis and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, and you would essentially write, not probably you, the z zoning lawyer would write, uh, but you would supply maybe uh, diagrams for and things like that. Uh, you would write a section of the zoning code and you would write all your own issues, like how big the streets need to be, how big, uh, you know, where will the stormwater go, uh, you know, all of those, how often will there be street lights. Uh, all of those kinds of zoning issues uh, you would sort of put into this code that you would write. You'd then give that back to the zoning department. The zoning department then would review it, maybe ask you to make some changes. And eventually, if they, if they think it sort of seems reasonable, they don't get to say, uh, yes, go ahead, but they do be, get to, to be able to give it to the government. So your city council or town manager or whatever city kind of city government you have. Uh, and then that town manager or that city council can review it. Maybe they have their own set of changes. It might go back and forth a couple of times. But eventually, if, if they like it, they will vote it in. And the reason they have to vote it in is because you are literally changing the zoning code. And the code is a law. It's a thing that has to be passed like any other uh, code or law. And if you're gonna change it, it has to be changed by them. That's why it can't be done by the zoning officials. They're important because they're the ones who are giving information to the city council, but the city council has to actually vote it in. So this seems like kind of a, like a, a peculiar and sort of uh, um, like why would this ever come up kind of thing, but it's actually kind of an important concept and it definitely does show up on the exam pretty frequently. Uh, and the reason it's an important concept is because the zoning codes, they do their damnedest. You know, zoning codes are written and it takes a long time to write and, and you know, the economy changes by the time it gets produced and it's now 20 years later and everything's a little different. And so they're always looking for ways to kind of keep things up to date. And if they can shoulder that off to the client, uh, that's great. And then the client pays for all the lawyers and does all that stuff. Um, but there's a clear process and you have a sort of a clear thing and there's a, a moment there for the client to get what they want and there's a moment for the city council to make sure that the city gets what it wants. Uh, and so it's a very useful setup. You start looking through zoning maps, you'll see a version of PUD or PD all over the place. Uh, and it happens all the time in most of the, especially major cities, but even small towns. Okay, how about number nine? During the creation of the program for a project, the cost estimate is typically done as a assembly type cost estimate, square footage estimate or comparables, line item type cost estimate, contingency estimate. Well, the word contingency is an interesting one when it comes to estimates. Um, I am a big fan of contingencies. Contingency is when you say, all right, this is gonna be uh, about a million dollar construction cost, but we should say it's gonna be a million one hundred thousand because we just know there's gonna be a bunch of stuff that we haven't thought of yet. That's, you're putting in the contingency. So that's great, but that contingency is a line item. It's not a full cost estimate. So that would be part of a cost estimate, but it's not the correct answer here. So it's not D. Uh, a line item type cost estimate means there's literally every different line item is called out. So uh, everybody who's ever done a review of a full bid from a contractor knows what a line item type is. It's very, very detailed uh, and would not be an appropriate thing for an architect to do at the beginning of a project. It's just too much detailed information. You don't know enough to be that detailed yet. So it's the wrong place for your energies to go in. So it's not a line type. So then the question comes, are we talking an assembly type cost estimate or a square footage estimate or comparables? Uh, an assembly type is when you're saying, okay, we have a uh, brick veneer wall with a CMU backup uh, and uh, we have a floor system that is, um, 
open web steel joists uh, that are bearing onto the CMU, and then there's a steel pan uh, corrugated deck with a concrete fill. Well, those are assemblies, right? That's a wall assembly and a floor assembly, and then you might have a roof assembly, and you might have two or three different wall assemblies. So instead of going through and saying, all right, we're going to have you know, 84,000 bricks, you're just going to say, all right, I'm going to find the information that says for a brick with a CMU backup, what does that cost per linear foot? What's, the, what's sort of the general cost range for something like that? So I'm looking at the overall assembly, and then that cost that I get for that is including the CMU, the brick, the reinforcing, the uh, grout infills, the rigid insulation. It sort of puts it all together and just gives you a simple uh, per linear foot number. Is it as accurate as a line item type? No, it's not going to be as accurate. It's obviously, if you do a fully detailed uh, cost estimate, it's going to be more accurate. But uh, an assembly type gets you pretty close, and it's a, it's a good way to sort of understand where you're at. But even that one, you're at the creation of the program. You're at the very beginning. You don't have enough information. You haven't decided whether there's a brick veneer with a, a CMU backup. Maybe it's a a uh, metal stud backup wall, not a CMU backup wall. You're just not there yet. So an assembly type is what you would do kind of at the end of DD, a design development, something like that. So the answer here is going to be B, just using simple square footages. It's going to be $200 a square foot, it's going to be $250 a square foot, something like that. You're going to have a general idea of how big things are. You're going to have a general idea of how much money it is per square foot. Anything more than that is really too detailed for this situation. Comparables is an interesting one. That's where you say, all right, we're doing a high school uh, and it's a high school for 520 kids. Uh, we did a high school two years ago for 400 kids and that worked out to about this amount of money. This is a little bit bigger and now it's a little bit later. Things are a little more expensive. We can judge it off of that comparable situation. Uh, or maybe uh, that was in a more expensive neighborhood, this one's in a less expensive state, not neighborhood, state, uh, and therefore that we can start with one number and then just sort of adjust it. That's what you're talking about, comparables, and those are very, very useful at this stage. So either square footage or comparables, when you're talking about that program level, you really can't be uh, beyond uh, that level of detail. Okay, we're going to do one quick bonus question here. Uh, because I just wanted to make sure we talked a little bit about uh, uh, topography. So, all right, using swales, protect the building pad from the groundwater flow. So one thing to say, first of all, is building pad is a kind of unusual term. Most architects, when they see the word pad, they think of concrete pad, uh, and so they think of that as being a built thing. In actuality, in the terminology of the exam and in kind of uh, uh, civil engineering terminology, Building pad just means the sort of cleared out area that's ready to have uh, construction happen. So no construction has happened other than kind of general site preparation. So we have the building pad shown. It's uh, sort of a generalized area. Uh, this would not be necessarily the actual floor plan. Uh, it's just sort of that's the area where the building will go. But now we're talking about using swales. We want to protect that area. We look at the numbers off the side, they're high uh, up here and they're low uh, there. So the high point is over here. Uh, obviously the thing we're worried about is if you imagine rain coming down here and flowing down the site, we don't want that rain to come into uh, our uh, building or even our construction site. So how do we stop that from happening? Well, okay, we're going to do a quickie here. I'm going to do some swales. I'm going to cut into that ground. I think we need some swale drawing music, please. Yes, you can add a little. Uh, So what we've done there is we've dug out, we made a ditch here and here so that any water that's coming down this hill that's going to attack our building 
is going to be taken right around the building. So I might do something like that. These extra ones probably aren't necessary. So you're digging into the ground in order to control the flow of the water. So that was a little bonus one for you there. Uh, remember, it's really easy. There's a swale and a berm. A swale is a ditch. A berm is a mound. It's very easy to get them confused because they flip around in your head. Uh, just you know, think about what it looks like when you're doing something like that. So if you imagine a little bit of uh, soil, right? So there's a slope piece of land. There's the contour lines uh, right on top of it. Imagine we dug a hole here. Well, that contour line would now look sort of like that, right? So you can see that it, the contour line, for lack of a better term, points uphill. See how these pointed uphill? So there you go. Everybody can do it. Awesome. All right, if anyone has any questions here, we may take one more. Um, but uh, I think we've kind of answered most of them as we've gone along here. So um, let's just see. I don't see anyone else throwing any questions in there. So we'll go ahead and close it up. So thank you, Mike. Really appreciate you uh, putting this together for everybody. Thanks to everyone who's tuned in and, and who submitted their questions today. Um, again, if you'd like to attend our next ARE live broadcast, uh, where we'll discuss our mock exam for the ARE 5.0, uh, construction and an evaluation, um, and that's basically the last exam. It's the sixth exam in the series. Um, you can visit blackspectacles.com slash podcast or register to attend. Uh, just like today's episode, you'll have a chance to ask questions and share your answers with Mike and the group for live feedback during the broadcast. Um, to learn more about our ARE exam prep curriculum, go to blackspectacles.com. Um, there you can try out any of the free course videos. Um, and as I mentioned, if you want to want your boss to pay for your membership, be sure to visit blackspectacles.com slash firms to learn more about our firm memberships for firms of any size. For those of you who are ready to start preparing for the ARE right away, um, and if you're already an AIA member, you can use coupon code 6617PAPC to get a 15% discount for the entire duration of your ARE exam prep membership. And then finally, uh, tomorrow we'll send you an email follow-up about today's broadcast, so please let us know what you think and share any suggestions that you may have. Uh, we'll read every word that you write and use them to tune our next episodes. So thanks for watching.